the military targeting of hospitals and healthcare workers. Over the last five years, there have been 4,000 incidents uh, documented, and that translates into a facility, a health facility, attacked every two days and a health worker killed every three days. That's Leonard Rubenstein. We talk with him about his book, Perilous Medicine, The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Military violence against hospitals, patients, and health workers has become a common feature of modern war. Think Kosovo, Yemen, Syria, and occupied Palestine. The attacks destroy lives. They also destroy the capacity of health systems to tend to those in need. Yet little is being done about this abomination. That's why my guest Leonard Rubinstein wrote the book Perilous Medicine. A human rights lawyer who's investigated atrocities against healthcare workers around the world, Rubinstein tells of the dangers they face during conflict and the legal, political, and moral struggle to protect them. Leonard Rubinstein, uh, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thanks so much for having me. This book, Perilous Medicine, looks at the horrific violence that's often deliberately carried out against healthcare workers and healthcare facilities during war. You first got involved in this issue when you went to Bosnia in the 1990s. Tell us about that and how did that lead to you writing this book? I had just started a job with an organization called Physicians for Human Rights that was one of the few groups that tried to document the violence against healthcare. And I went to Bosnia right after the war, and I heard a lot of stories about what had happened, as well as reading reports. And if I can share one story, uh, there was a uh, pediatric hospital in Sarajevo, and the pediatrician in charge was uh, notified just a few minutes ahead that it may well be shelled in a few minutes. And she got the babies who were in incubators out and they went next door to a hosp- another hospital to the basement. But that hospital was also shelled and it knocked out power, water, electricity, and nine of the babies died overnight. And that is what opened my eyes to these wrenching uh, kinds of attacks. And in the years subsequent to that, I traveled to other war zones in Chechnya, in the West Bank, in Gaza, uh, and Kosovo, and other places. And the pattern was seemed to be clear, although the manifestations were often different. The violence was common, and that's been true ever since. And And I felt the world wasn't paying attention either. And so that kind of started me on this journey. You're right about the world not paying attention. And it's something I think very few people really know about. You know, in 2019, there were at least 1,200 individually documented acts of violence against healthcare facilities and personnel in 20 countries around the world. But this is really just the tip of the iceberg. Talk about the real scope of this problem. It's the tip of the iceberg in two different senses. One is that in many countries, uh, incidents aren't reported. There are a lot of reasons why they're not reported. It's 
too dangerous, that people who are under such stress of a war don't have time or they don't believe that it'll do any good to spend their time reporting. So this is a major undercount. Um, but also to put the number into perspective, not the 1200 number, but we've also learned that over the last five years, there have been 4,000 incidents uh, documented, and that translates into a facility, a health facility, attacked every two days and a health worker killed every three days. And, and that leads to the second aspect about the tip of the iceberg, which is that Despite these injuries and deaths, those aren't the major consequences because what happens is that these attacks often destroy future healthcare, whether on an individual level and sometimes a systemic level, whether it's protecting kids from polio and other disease, childhood diseases, or having safe childbirth years afterward, uh, after the attacks, the morbidity and mortality continue. So the ramifications are just enormous. Um, one example of that that you give in the book, which we will also return to a little bit later, is Yemen, which saw what was it, the largest outbreak of cholera ever recorded? Talk about how how that came about. During the war, uh, the Saudi-led coalition, particularly Saudi Arabia itself, in its war against the Houthis in Yemen, which started in 2015, uh, indiscriminately bombed. They took no care, as they were supposed to do, to distinguish between military and civilian objects. And they destroyed many hospitals and basically an already weak health system. And they also bombed water and sanitation facilities. So there was no clean water in Yemen to speak of unless it was brought in by truck. Uh, and that led to 2 million people uh, getting cholera. And we think of cholera in Haiti or Somalia, but that, that outbreak was like 20 times bigger than anything in recent years. Uh, and that's what you see. You see destruction of systems with consequences for people who are far away, sometimes far away in time. That wasn't the case in Yemen, but in some cases it is. What are some of the different factors that tend to drive these attacks? I mean, you just mentioned, you know, there was indiscriminate bombing, but there's also targeted bombing. So what are the factors that, that cause these atrocities? One of the things I've been trying to understand over the years and what I grappled with in writing the book is to understand why these are happening. After all, the law has prohibited these kinds of attacks for the last 150 years. Uh, so what is driving these? And what I concluded is that, that combatants have military objectives and that they act in accordance with those objectives and attacking healthcare in various ways can advance those objectives. In, in Syria, there's been strategic bombing against health facilities and killing of almost a thousand health workers, uh, basically as a way of forcing populations to move, displacing them, showing populations that supporting rebel groups will just cause more pain and advancing a particular military campaign. So that's strategic. 
it's sometimes tactical. It's very simple where a hospital is a good place to fire a, a rocket or, or guns because of its geographic location or because it has supplies that combatants want. And a third, one of the most common is uh, that despite the law that says everyone is entitled to equal care if you're wounded or sick, and combatants must be impartial in how they treat a wounded people because they're not in combat anymore, uh, people don't like enemies to be treated, whether those enemies are wounded combatants or uh, people who are treating them. So there are uh, campaigns against both the people who are sick or wounded and their caregivers uh, in many countries. So those, those are three reasons. There are others. You know, one of the things, Leonard Rubinstein, that I found so interesting, I mean, aside from the amazing stories you tell in this book, Perilous Medicine, is the development of the very concepts that undergird the Geneva Conventions or the idea that medical workers should not be targeted and contradictory, you know, contradictory notions. You you write about the development of the idea of the humanitarian limits on warfare, and you focus in on two figures from the 19th century. That's Francis Lieber and Henri Dunant. Um, they took very different tacks on the issue that have influenced, you know, where we are today. So um, tease out that story for us. Sure. Amazingly, they both uh, were very active in the 1860s, very same decade. And Dunant witnessed a terrible battle in northern Italy where wounded soldiers were just left lying on the battlefield, uh, desperately hurt, uh, dying of thirst, uh, and just uh, in terrible suffering. And he couldn't believe that no one was coming to their aid and they, no one was because those people could be shot if they went out to help them. And so he wrote a famous book, one as famous there as, uh, as uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's book here in the same period and said, we need to care for wounded soldiers. And principles of humanity apply, that these people are human beings and they need to be dealt with as other human beings. And that led to the first Geneva Convention in 1864, which set that as a rule and extended it to protection of hospitals and healthcare workers. And over the last 150 years, that principle and those laws have gotten only stronger over time. So all over the world, these principles of protection of healthcare are reaffirmed, they're based in the law, and uh, there are international treaties like the convention saying so. But at the same time as Dunant was writing, there was a contrary view that Francis Lieber was advocating that while cruelty in war should be forbidden, if it was required to breach the rules of protection of civilians or healthcare, in order to win a just war more quickly, it was acceptable to attack them. And he advocated that that's become the, the rule of military necessity. That was rejected and has been rejected time and again in international law. But interestingly, he incorporated those ideas into uh, a code that 
Abraham Lincoln adopted for the Union Army just before the Battle of Gettysburg and has been influential ever since. And when you look at his reasoning, uh, it's not hard to grasp that combatants would think that they're justified in attacking healthcare because in their minds, their war is just, and in their minds, it might help end the war more quickly. So it's incredibly open-ended. And one of the things I tried to do in this book is explain this contrasting set of norms and how we have more norms in the law, but another set of norms apparently in people's conduct. Yeah, I mean, that was the excuse given for dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, although that's not an argument that that I accede to, especially in light of the fact that Japan was already suing for peace before then. But, you know, it just shows the kind of horrific consequences when you fudge the line, when you say, you know, for humanitarian reasons, we're going to destroy the enemy. Uh, what's interesting is that these days, the Lieber view of necessity as a justification is rarely articulated, but yet we still see it. For example, in counterterrorism law, where, as I said a moment ago, uh, the idea that everybody is entitled to treatment if they're wounded or sick, and nobody should be punished for providing it. Counterterrorism law criminalizes health care to someone the government deems a terrorist, which is completely contrary to the Geneva Conventions, but is justified because uh, of the fight against terrorism. So we see how those ideas seep in to practices not only of rogue states or rogue uh, armed groups, but in the practice of countries and the policies of countries that purport to be devoted to international law and the Geneva Conventions. And could you talk about that specifically with the United States? Because I've, I found, you know, there were some really compelling cases there of, you know, a doctor who was denied asylum in this country. And where was that? There was one case in Turkey. In Nepal, in Nepal. Yes, in Nepal, exactly. Tell us the story <laughs> rather than me trying to tell it for you. <laughs> If I, if you don't mind, I'll give you a little background because the situation changed. Uh, I mentioned going to Chechnya, and there was a doctor there who was treating both wounded Russian soldiers and Chechen rebel combatants, and each side went after him because he was treating the other side. And he ended up coming to the United States and getting asylum. But after 9-11, the situation really changed as counterterrorism became such a, a major foreign policy objective. And then a case arose where a medic in Nepal had been kidnapped by Maoist rebels, as they often did, to provide care to, to the cadres uh, who, who needed medical care. He eventually escaped. But when he got back home, the government went after him for having treated Maoists. He managed to get out and come to the United States, and he was denied uh, his claim for asylum uh, because he had provided care to a terrorist or a terrorist organization or on behalf of a terrorist organization, even though he was compelled by being kidnapped to do so. 
the story had a happy ending in that he was allowed under a different provision to get asylum. But the immigration court said, well, the provisions of the Geneva Convention are not relevant here because our counterterrorism law is what applies. So we see this, and that that is part of the checkered record of this country. Uh, on the one hand, a, a champion of human rights and the Geneva Conventions in many circumstances, but engaging in actions that contravene or undermine them in other circumstances. Yeah, like imprisoning people without charge for 20 years in Guantanamo. But you also say that counterterrorism law is not only, let's say, unfair and, and counter to the Geneva Conventions, but it's also irrational and counterproductive. Explain. You just have to think about it. I think you have to think of the premise that you're going along a very long logical chain. That is that if someone who is wounded, who is, has any connection whatsoever with a terrorist organization, um, and you provide that care, maybe they might in the future commit a terrorist act and kill people. It's a, uh, a chain of logic which you, which you can follow, but there's no empirical basis for believing that has any reality. And of course, it's also applied so broadly that it's not restricted to people who are, as uh, the Bush administration officials used to say, the worst of the worst, but it's applied categorically. And we saw that, you mentioned uh, Guantanamo, We've seen that, too, where the dragnet swept everybody in, whether they were an innocent farmer or driver or a terrorist, because the law is applied so broadly that you don't make distinctions. So it isn't rational. And there's no evidence that this kind of rule of pun and punishing doctors, punishing a doctor is going to stop a terrorist attack. It doesn't seem very likely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and then there's another issue that comes up is a, kind of the debate within the humanitarian and donor community about the role of neutrality in aid work. You have the example in Myanmar of some aid organizations that refused to support a group called Backpack because Backpack was supporting the pro-democracy movement. And so they, they claimed that it was political. This seems really bizarre. So uh, tell us about this story and, and that larger debate that it points to. It's bizarre, but it's all too common. It's common because in places like Myanmar, where in a war in the eastern part of a country where oppressed ethnic groups were trying to gain some autonomy, there was a military wing to their groups. And the Burmese military uh, responded with complete brutality, displacing local populations, attacking civilians, and would not allow humanitarian groups to go in to provide care for civilians. And so indigenous groups began to provide that care. And they were, the one group you mentioned, the backpack health workers, were identified with the ethnic groups. And so some people were concerned that they weren't doing their jobs because they were acting politically. 
the idea that someone who is offering medical care to someone is, is engaged in a political act is extremely problematic, especially when you say it's prohibited because they're acting appropriately from a medical standpoint. They're acting ethically and their political affiliations are separate from their medical work. And the same is true in Syria, where basically everyone living in an opposition-controlled area, every human being and every physician, nurse, and other person just living there is deemed to be an enemy uh, because it's occupied by the uh, opposing forces. And these are people who are, are themselves under attack. So again, this makes no logical sense but it's very powerful as a, a kind of an ideology that they're not showing an expected neutrality, which the law doesn't require and shouldn't. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Leonard Rubinstein about his book, Perilous Medicine, The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War. Let's go back to the Geneva Convention. Um, The first Geneva Conventions protected soldiers wounded in battle and their caregivers, but it didn't protect civilians from attack, nor did it stop the kind of bombing that we saw in Dresden or Hiroshima or the London Blitz, for that matter. How did the Geneva Conventions change after World War II, and do they protect civilians and their caregivers from that kind of bombing now? Uh, in the aftermath of World War II, the Geneva Conventions would change because of all the, the atrocities that happened during the war, and so they were extended to protection of civilians. But what wasn't done was to stop strategic bombing. Uh, the United States uh, was the only possessor of a nuclear weapon, and no one, neither the British nor the United States, wanted a kind of retrospective judgment on their conduct in the bombing of Germany and, of course, Japan. So there was no prohibition on indiscriminate bombing or strategic bombing after the Second World War. And that led to Korea, where 18 cities were destroyed, probably a million people were killed, probably a thousand hospitals uh, were destroyed, we don't know for sure. And then Vietnam, where we all know about the napalm and the cluster bombs and the uh, defoliants and all kinds of other horrors inflicted, uh, both in Vietnam and Cambodia and actually in Laos too. It was after Vietnam in 1977 that the conventions were finally amended to prohibit any attack that doesn't distinguish between civilians and military objects. And that's actually had a good effect, although there are still thousands of violations. Uh, The prohibition on strategic bombing has had an impact, not in Syria, where hospitals are targets, but at least among a lot of countries. So we don't see the kind of casualty, civilian casualty numbers, which in the past had numbered in the hundreds of thousands or even millions. Now, despite the fact that there shouldn't be any such casualties of civilians, um, it's gone way down. So that has been a positive impact of the conventions. There's just so much more work to do. The U.S. is a signatory of the Geneva Conventions. Isn't that correct? 
Uh, yes, it did not uh, ratify the 1977 changes, but it agrees to be bound by uh, the provisions that require distinguishing civilian and military objects and the requirement that attacks have to be proportional in the sense that you have to take account civilian casualties when you launch an attack. So even though they didn't ratify, we didn't ratify them, they are considered binding. So wouldn't this outlaw nuclear war? Uh, yes, it would. But as in so many circumstances, the United States government does not is not willing to take that position formally. Talk also about the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, the occupation of, of Palestinian territory. You have a chapter which talks about checkpoints and, and the violence against ambulances. Talk a little bit about what's been going on there. Yeah. I chose to write about the problem of medical evacuation and ambulance safety at checkpoints uh, because the record in Israel is more extensive anywhere else. And for a time, they actually tried to address it. It's a problem that is true around the world. And some thinkers or writers speculate that more people die at checkpoints because they can't get through than do in hospital bombings around the world. And in Israel, this has been a, an issue for at least 20 or 30 years during the occupation when there have been flare-ups in violence, as we've seen so often in Gaza, sometimes in the West Bank, and also in the routine dimensions of occupation where Palestinian movement is constrained. Uh, you're supposed to have provisions that allow people to get through checkpoints and to be medically evacuated uh, during combat so they can get to care. And Back in 2002, when I went during the second intifada, uh, five medics had been killed by the Israelis in about two or three weeks. Uh, we went to the West Bank in Gaza in 2002 uh, because five medics had been killed uh, in two or three weeks by the Israeli army. And it turned out that there are procedures that uh, combatants can have to inspect ambulances to make sure they're not carrying weapons. Uh, but even after Palestinian ambulances had been inspected, uh, they were still shot at and people were killed. There was an outcry, both internationally and domestically, about these related events. And Israel instituted some reforms which worked for a while. But over time, their commitment to these reforms dissipated. And we saw that in Gaza, where many, many more people were killed or died because they weren't evacuated. And at the same time, the regime of checkpoints, both between Israel and the West Bank and within the West Bank, expanded to dozens and hundreds eventually. And people have been deterred from reaching routine care for childbirth, for, for chronic disease. And we know that many babies have been born at checkpoints. Mothers have died giving birth at checkpoints. So it's an enormous and solvable problem, uh, but it remains not solved, both in Israel uh, and in other places in the world. Now, in 2016, the UN Security Council adopted a resolution that 
specifically laid out a path for the protection of health workers in war. Tell us about that resolution and where does it stand today? That resolution came about after there was an airstrike by a U.S. fighter, a Doctors Without Borders hospital in Afghanistan. It was a modern, new hospital, served thousands of trauma patients every year, was incredibly valued by the population for hundreds of kilometers around. And as the attack was going forward, uh, the Doctors Without Borders staff were frantically calling the military and their contacts to say, stop this, this is a mistake, or this is wrong. But the messages didn't get through. There was an investigation that showed that there were multiple layers of negligence and dereliction of duty. It was not intentionally targeted as a hospital, but many mistakes and an absence of required um, actions to as precautions were not taken. Because it was such a dramatic attack and it was conducted by the United States, it stimulated attention around the world and eventually a resolution the following year at the UN Security Council. And it was a very strong resolution, not only condemning attacks, but demanding that governments take various actions to from their military practices and hold perpetrators to account. And they all agreed to it. It was passed unanimously and like 80 or 90 co-sponsors. And yet five years later, there's been virtually no action to to, uh, adhere to this resolution that Governments haven't acted as they should to engage in the reforms. Uh, there's still impunity and absence of accountability as the resolution called for. So in a way, it was a milestone, but it was a problematic milestone in that it was another rhetorical uh, assertion of belief in the Geneva Conventions, but it wasn't followed by action. As Greta Thunberg would say, it's blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, yes, although we're not giving up. (laughs) Yeah, and in fact, you do feel that there's some reason for hope in this book, Leonard Rubenstein, in Perilous Medicine. What can be done? How can governments and other combatants be pressured to uh, stop attacking healthcare healthcare workers? One of the reasons I decided to write the book was because I think there has to be more of a demand to stop this, a demand by the citizenry, and particularly a demand by members of the health professions, doctors, nurses, public health officials. And there has to be a solidarity with the people who are out there working in these incredibly difficult and violent circumstances, making terribly difficult decisions, suffering trauma, not only the trauma, the violence, but the, the what we call moral distress of not being able to do your job when you think you have an obligation to do it. So we have to raise the visibility and make a social demand. And there are very many concrete steps that can be taken, whether it's a country that's at war, where uh, ministries of health can get more involved, or countries like the United States, where our influence on military practice around the world is enormous. For example, 
I mentioned the war in Yemen and the indiscriminate bombing by the Saudis. Well, that was uh, enabled in part by enormous U.S. arms sales to the Saudis, which enabled these attacks to take place, including mid-air refueling and other military forms of support, as well as the arms. Uh, There are also reforms in military operational practice in the field that could be undertaken. And Congress actually required the Defense Department to do that in a defense bill last year, although there hasn't been a lot of action on that to date. And there can be more accountability. Uh, We have institutions of accountability, but governments use their political clout to, to prevent accountability, not only for their own actions, but for the actions of allies. So we have to change the dynamic. And I think it can be changed in the way finally uh, this use of strategic bombing became unacceptable. And you can't really talk about that without talking about the anti-war movement against Vietnam, where it not only had an impact at home, but it actually led to changes in international law. So We have a lot to do, and it won't happen unless we do it. Well, and as as someone who got my start in politics in that anti-Vietnam War movement, I'm very glad to hear that it led to some changes in international law. Uh, Leonard Rubenstein, your book is Perilous Medicine, The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War. It is such an important book, very compellingly written, with a lot of amazing stories in it. I highly recommend it to my listeners. And thank you so much for joining us here. And thanks so much for having me. Leonard Rubenstein is professor and director of the Program on Human Rights and Health in Conflict at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He founded the Safeguarding Health in Conflict Coalition and is a former president of of Physicians for Human Rights.